Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another exciting episode of Anthology of Horror. I am your host, Springheel Jack. I want to thank all you new listeners for tuning in for the first time, and consistent listeners, thank you very much, as always, for continuing to tune back in and for telling your friends and making all this possible. I have seen the levels of engagement pick up dramatically, and I know it's because you guys are spreading the word. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So this is going to be another ad-free, guaranteed listening experience, as only I can bring to you. I uh, value your time, so there will be no advertisements at all, because nobody wants to hear commercial about boner pills while you're trying to listen to your true crime stories or horror stories. I certainly don't. So after the last two episode arc, I uh, wanted to gouge my ears and eyes out because that shit was brutal. So back by popular demand, I'm going to be doing another California summer travel and story guide. Uh, Notorious crimes by region, kind of. It's going to be similar to the other one of the same name. But I think I have some very interesting stuff in the true crime vein that you guys will probably dig thoroughly that I'm going to cover today. So without any further ado, if you remember last time we were talking about the great the great alleged continent of Lemuria. We will not be talking about that again today. We're going to start instead with something a lot scarier and far more real, and that is Death Valley. So, uh, I spent a lot of time out in Death Valley, and a lot of people will ask, Is it really that hot? Is it dangerous? Um, it's not named Life Valley, so if you're stupid, yes... I've seen signs out there that say uh, emergency responders will not respond if it's over 115 or 120. I don't know how true that is, but I've seen signs. A lot of bullet holes in them, but it's a, it's a strange place. It gets to be miserably hot. It gets to be fucking disturbingly cold. The Air Force does low-level flyovers there all the time. It's just a weird spot. It's great. It's beautiful. I love it. I have a million pictures of... Just the cool shit that I've found in Death Valley on my Instagram. But it was named that for a reason. It's definitely prob definitely probably. It's most likely some of the roughest desert in this country, that being America. And it's brutal. It's unforgiving. The fucking dunes are rough. Panamint Valley is brutal. But it's rewarding because it's beautiful. And it's uh I don't know, it's it's a mixed bag. Like, your eyes get sunburned, but you get some of the most scenic vistas ever with nobody around to see them. So it's hit or miss. Um, I recently just started wearing haji gear, and that fucking makes a huge difference, so fuck it. Anyway, perhaps Death Valley's name is what gives it its sinister, otherworldly reputation. Certainly, the searing heat and moonscape panoramas also contribute to the mystery that surrounds the park. And of course, there are a fuckload of legends. Tall tales tell of rotting wagons and gingham-dress-clad skeletons half-buried in the shifting sands of the fabulously rich lost gunsight mind and Bray Fogel's elusive gold vein. More macabre mythology has taken hold in the wake of good old Charlie Manson when he was captured here in 1969. Uh, Manson fled to Death Valley with his goon squad of alleged killer flower children after uh, two bloody nights of slaughter that it was uh, they said that he thought 
I have very strong opinions about the Manson case that I will get into at a much later date. Uh, but Bugliosi, the the guy that prosecuted him, said that he was attempting to start a race war with his two nights of violence. Um, a cataclysmic race war, those are the exact words. <laughs> An adherent of a variety of cult doctrines, according to Bugliosi, Manson believed that the Devil's Hole, or a uh, deep water-filled cavern on Death Valley's Nevada side, was the answer for all of their fucking race war needs. What would he say exactly? Where he and his followers could wait out the apocalypse, re-emerging as leaders of a purified world. But he was arrested before he could figure out how to get his goon squad through the several, several hundred feet of hot, salty water that had drowned two divers just a few years earlier. Uh, Manson may have learned of the underground world from the story of Tom Wilson, who was a Karak Indian, who was a Death Valley guide in the 1920s. Wilson said that when he was a boy, his grandfather told him that he had found a tunnel that extended for miles beneath the valley. We walked its entire length, and the man ended up in an underground chamber where a race of fair-skinned people dwelt. The people smoke, spoke a foreign language, wore clothes made of leather-like substances, and illuminated their home with a pale greenish-yellow light of unknown origins. Uh, the native eventually resurfaced and returned to his people, who were skeptical, to say the least, about his adventure. But Tom Wilson believed the old man had not lied to him, and he spent the rest of his life searching for the entry to the underground world. Let me take a sidebar here and say that when white people start digging and going underground, something is wrong. Um, there have been several instances in history where when the white people start digging, they have gone insane. There was that guy that tried to dig up downtown Los Angeles because the lizard people lived under the city. Granted, there are old legends that say that there is a race of reptilians that live under the city of Los Angeles, but I'm not gonna fucking drill into the city. Uh, this guy had the means to, so he did. Charlie Manson, talking about going underground, starts digging. Not really, he wasn't digging, he found a cave, but caves and digging for white folk. That's, uh, that's fucking check me into a psych hospital time. That's rough. It's always rough after that. At one point, he teamed up with a prospector who just went by the name of White, who claimed that he too had found strange underground dwellings in Death Valley. Coincidence? Nope. White's story was that he had been exploring an abandoned mine in Wingate Pass when he fell into a hidden tunnel that led to a series of rooms filled with leather-clad human mummies, gold bars, and other fabulous treasures that were stacked in piles around him. There was a passageway leading beyond the rooms that was well lit by an eerie greenish light. White dared not explore any further, fearful of what might lay beyond. He visited the rooms three more times, once with his wife, another with another prospector, but he was unable to locate the cavern later when accompanied by Wilson and a group of people that could have corroborated his story, known as archaeologists. The area around Wingate Pass was eventually absorbed into the China Lake Naval Weapons Center and is now uh, shoot on sight close to the public. One day, one day I'll tell you my Edwards Air Force Base story. When it's funny, but it's not still not funny yet. But other mystery sites in Death Valley are still accessible. One is the Amagarosa Mountains in the southeast corner of the valley. And uh, years ago, what I would call a desert rat was driving this range in his Jeep when he came to a group of boulders blocking the middle of the road. So he parked his car, found a narrow pass between the rocks, and walked down into the sandy valley, where he saw 
30 wooden buildings half covered by sand dunes and laid out like a planned community. Happens all the time out there. You see this shit religiously. So, fuckboy went inside some of the buildings and found wooden tables that were set for meals, brass candlesticks, scraps of cloth, and even an empty picture frame on the wall. There were no human remains, no signs of violence or natural disaster, or of those fuck fucking assholes from the city that come and graffiti everything. No ghost towns were known to exist in this arid mountain, so it was unknown what it was. And whether the unnamed explorer had really located a lost community or was just spinning tall tale has never been determined. Now, there are certain places out there that are just migrant camps where they are set up overnight, seemingly, and uh, they work the mine there for a while, or they dig a hole, <laughs> and uh, they just leave it. There's a bunch of those outside of Darwin, which I do not recommend going to. Um, there's a bunch of them set up near Amboy, too, where I was unpleasantly surprised in the middle of the night. Uh, it's, it happens, man. People... You know, it may come as a surprise, but people don't like paying property taxes. So if there's a simpler way to just live off the grid, setting up in the middle of Death Valley is a pretty good way to do it. So it was never determined. All right, I have uh, several anecdotal stories before I get back to our notorious... notorious spots in California. So... It's hard to talk about the California desert without immediately mentioning old prospector stories, but they're so unreliable that there's even an annual liars contest held in Borrego Springs in honor of this guy that was full of shit named Pegleg Smith, whose lost gold mine is still rumored to exist in the desolate mountains northeast of the desert town. However, no good reason not to listen, uh, and the many stories told around the Borrego Sandman beg for attention for any serious aficionado of the weirdness. Borrego area in California's desert south is crisscrossed by countless arroyos, crevices, and canyons. It is fucking brutal. Death Valley is miserable, but Borrego almost killed me. It's terrible. I fucking don't spend much time in Anza Borrego. I've spent enough time there. I'm never going back. I'll go back, but it's not my favorite spot. The local Native American tribes tell stories of vast underground labyrinths. See that? Minotaurs. Labyrinths. Those of you that don't know the, the fucking reference, I was terrified of the Minotaur because I, it was read to me as a youth, and uh, I was taught fear of the Minotaur as well as fear of the Jinn. It's a very... It's not an ethnic story, I guess, but it's a, it was a cultural thing, and uh, I am still terrified of the Minotaur to this day, uh, playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey wasn't fun because there's a fucking Minotaur level, but I'm ranting again. I have a Minotaur episode. It's, uh, I don't know if I did it justice, but fuck Minotaurs. So there's labyrinths all over this place, not the same kind, and there are also the famous mud caves of Borrego that are now visited by thousands every year. <laughs> Perhaps these very real caves and crevices that are dark and forbidding are the source of some of these bullshit stories. The area is now part of the largest state park in all of California, but in the 19th and early 20th century, various desert rats and seekers of fortune roamed the wilds here. One local guy, who requested to stay anonymous, was interviewed in 1970 and reported that he camped near the Borrego Sink in 39, and he was accosted by a tribe of giant, upright, walking apes covered with white fur. <laughs> um, yeah. He said that the creature's eyes glowed red, 
They were apparently frightened of his campfire and they kept their distance, and yet they still accosted him. Uh, another man named Victor Stoyanow was exploring the stink, not the stink, the sink, in 64 when he came across a 14-inch long footprint-looking thing in a sand dune. Warren Smith 1969 article, America's Terrifying Woodland Monster Men, published to Real Man Adventure magazine, aka Saga, reported Stoyanow's description of his find. The prints ran in pairs, he said, generally parallel, and uh, averaged about 14 inches in length and 9 inches at instep. Uh, Stoyanow returned to the area several times to make plaster casts and take photos of the footprints, but the present whereabouts of these artifacts, conveniently, is unknown. In the same Saga article, Smith reported the odd experience of one Harold Lancaster, who was prospecting in the area in 1968, and Lancaster was making his breakfast when he saw a man walking in the desert. The figure came closer, and he thought it was another prospector. So he raised his middle finger in salute. Then he picked up his binoculars and saw the strangest sight that he said he'd ever seen in his life. It was a real, giant, honest-to-God ape man. The prospector grabbed his 22 pistol and fired shots into the air, and the beast jumped a good three feet off the ground, looked straight at Lancaster, and fucking sprinted away. The Sandman of the Borrego Badlands has not been sighted since the late 1960s. That's, isn't that right around when the acid stopped being good? Uh, maybe the creature has become annoyed with the hordes of off-roaders encroaching on the outskirts of his stomping grounds and has moved on to some other, more forsaken wilderness. Or maybe I just cut my hair. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. So, at the end of a twisting mountain road in Aliso Canyon, which is six miles west of Santa Paula, lies the lair of one of California's most grotesque and frightening creatures, which I had never heard of until today. It's called the Billywhack Monster. This beast takes its name from the abandoned Billywhack Dairy built by August Rubel in 1925. Rubel sought to create a state-of-the-art high-tech operation, but the Great Depression ruined his plans, and he managed barely to keep his business going through the 30s. And uh, unfortunately, the dairy was finally abandoned in 43 after Rubel was killed while driving a U.S. Army ambulance in Africa. Soon after his death, there came rumors of ghosts and monsters haunting the old dairy. Uh, this is the scary dairy. Actually, I didn't think it was, but it is. Soon after his death, there came rumors of ghosts and monsters haunting the old dairy. People said there was a huge human-like creature lurking around the ruins at night. It was described as being muscular and powerful, with gray hair covering its body, long talons on its fingers, and a horned, ram-like head. One witness said that it had a shining feline-type yellow-green eyes, and uh, its most dramatic appearance was back in 1964, though when the beast terrified a group of boys hiking in the canyon. The incident made headlines all over California, and it was recently turned into the movie Brokeback Mountain. Little known fact. Through the years, the monster has made infrequent nocturnal appearances in Aliso Canyon, and there has been much local speculation about it. There are a lot of bars in this area. Though many dismiss it as a creation of an overactive juvenile imagination, because most of the witnesses conveniently have been teenagers, Others are convinced the beast is real. It's been variously called a deformed Bigfoot, and its simple, uh, if fantastic appearance is that maybe it's a Bigfoot ghost. 
The latter explanation may be the most popular one, though, because recently a local paper's poll asked Ventura residents who their favorite ghost was. Despite stiff competition from history, haunted Central California, uh, and they have a ton of phantoms in Central California, allegedly, the Billowack monster was hands down everyone's favorite. And there's a rather terrifying picture of this fucking thing uh, that someone has drawn. It's uh, got a monkey's face, a baby monkey's face, the horns of a ram, looks like the neck of a wolf, and the rest of it is a human baby. And it's being held by a devil red arm. And the baby is holding a full bottle of milk and seemingly dumping it all over its chin. So if I'm talking about fucking strange uh, beast sightings, I would be remiss in not mentioning at least a little bit the giant rabbit at Tick Canyon. You may have heard of it because it's a very popular thing, but uh, I think it's horseshit. So this is a story from some guy. I was the first to encounter the beast back in March of 1969. While out at Tick Canyon, mapping the rocks in the area as part of a UCLA ge geology field mapping course, Tick Canyon is located in northern LA County, about a west, a mile west of Vasquez Rock, um, and a half mile north of the Antelope Valley Freeway. <laughs> well, there, there's the answer for the giant rabbit. It's a uh, nuclear deformity because of Santa Susana nuclear whatever the fuck that was the uh, old I think it was rocketdyne plant is up there in the mountains but anyway this uh, mountain or <laughs> this animal was five foot five tall and it weighed about 150 to 175 pounds at first I thought it was a kangaroo it was facing me and it was about seven feet away so I couldn't see its tail but there was no pouch when it finally turned and hopped away I saw it had a white cotton tail then this became the legend only at the UCLA Geology Department, but in the subsequent years, the other students who had not heard my story also reported this big fucking rabbit in the Tick Canyon area. So someone got an Easter Bunny costume and drunk, <laughs> and then they just uh, like fucking with people. That's that's fucking hilarious. I might have to do that. There have been many an article written about it, which I will not bore you with the details. It's a big fucking rabbit that people see when they're alone or they have nobody to corroborate their story. How about the Monkey Men of Napa? A year ago or so, I heard the local legend of the Rebobs in Napa County, and they're said to be monkey men that stalk Patrick Road in Napa. And as the legend goes, two lovers were making out by the cemetery on Patrick Road, terrible idea, when they heard something on the roof of their car, and they were scared, so they didn't get out. Uh, when a driver drove by, he stopped and got out, took out a shotgun, and then the couple heard something jump off the roof of the car, and in the headlights they saw what looked like a monkey and a man. And that is a direct quote from some dude named Ethan Rogers. So, another one is, uh, I'm almost done with these cryptids, these are just fun. The blood-sucking chupacabra, which uh, I'm certain everyone has heard of that shit. Uh, it used to just be the name that I called small people at work, but the chupacabra is another legendary beast that is sometimes reportedly seen in California. The name is Spanish for Goat Sucker. The reason the creature has a Spanish name is that it was first seen on the island of Puerto Rico. But sightings spread from there to Mexico and parts of Latin America, and unlike Bigfoot sightings, which date back more than 100 years, chupacabra sightings, according to most authorities, began no earlier than the 60s or 50s. 
So because of this, and because they were first mostly limited to Latin American countries, it was assumed by many that the Chupacabra was no more than a superstitious regional legend, and that supposed encounters in Southern California were simply an extension of Latin immigration and legend. But this does not explain the reports of thousands of slaughtered livestock, particularly goats and chickens all found with weird puncture wounds and their bodies drained of blood. It also doesn't explain the repeated sightings of an oddly shaped beast lurking around areas where dead animals are also found. A composite of the alleged eyewitness accounts pictures the chupacabra is about four feet tall, weighing about 70 pounds, having gray skin with spikes or perhaps hair running down its spine, so it's the predator. Short arms with claws, rear legs like those of a kangaroo, and the following abridged letter is presented here, uh, and it's courtesy of Joyce Murphy, president and founder of Beyond Boundaries UFO Research Organization. It's called Close Encounters of the Chupacabra Kind. We have lived in this current home and fell in... Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> okay, so they live um, in another highly radiated area near Hesperia for two and a half years and have had several interesting sightings of this Chupacabra. We've been seriously debating sending this to you as we really didn't want to seem like we're fucking crazy people. This is so unusual for us that at first, when my family was seeing strange things, we all teased each other and thought we were seeing strange things just in our mind. The most recent problem we have noticed is a very rapid decrease in our coyote population. That's a problem? Until recently, the coyotes were getting so bold they were eating dog food off of our porch. Suddenly, they're gone. We don't see them. We don't even hear them. We also aren't seeing rabbits like we do this time of the year. Usually they're everywhere. Which is why I think the coyote population was so high. Just starvation would not account for the decrease. It would have taken much longer to reach this level of no coyotes. Last month, my pig was going nuts outside, and I looked out, but I didn't see anything. But she was still going crazy squealing. Uh, as a reenactment educator, I am handy with a sword. Oh, you just lost all the credibility, sir. <laughs> so I went outside with it. Oh my god, did you shout affix bayonets at your children and have them load the blunderbuss too? Oh my god. I encountered something trying to get to my pig and that was unbelievable. The creature stood on two legs and is a dark smoky gray. It seemed to be covered in some sort of a peach fuzz in the same gray color. The eyes are enormous and almond-shaped and appear to be black, and the head was an oval shape that was much wider on top. The arms had three digits that looked like long claws on the ends. The arms themselves were very thin and gave the appearance of limited power, yet I watched in morbid fascination as it tore open the chain link of the pig pen effortlessly. It resembled a mini person, about three to four feet tall, and. 75 to 80 pounds, as I said, and it has these spiky things on its back like porcupine quills that seem to move on their own. When I got close, they began to twitch, and I was thoroughly convinced that this thing could launch them if he chose to. Holy shit. If that's real, which I'm sure it's not, that's terrifying. My dogs were barking under my house, and when, I, when they realized I was out there, they came out and moved toward this thing. Yeah, they seemed to be terrified of it until I was out there to back them up. So you're running up on it with your buddies. That's not usually cool. The thing looked out at them, and then at me, and it seemed to be afraid of the sword that I was carrying. <laughs> I had the sword in a striking position, and the dogs charged the creature, and it took off behind the house, or 
um, took off jumping our three-foot fence that sags in the middle, and then it disappeared into the bushes. The dogs chased it to the fence, they stopped, and came back. I think they were too afraid to go after it. Now I'm getting a little worried for my dog, if, or my dogs, if this creature or creatures have exhausted the coyote population. We're very near the foothills with a few neighbors. We've also made two amazing discoveries in the past few days. First, after a party, as is our custom, we give our pig the leftover soda and beer from the cans? What? She really loves the beer. Oh my god. That night, this thing came after her. Only when it got close, it raised its head in the air, spun around, and took off. Clearly didn't like the smell of the hooch. So we've been feeding the pier or feeding the pig a beer a night since then, and it has been left alone. The other discovery happened after a heavy freeze. We put some of our rock salt to melt the ice to prevent further icing, and the next morning we found three clogged tracks of this thing all around the salt, but it never came inside the salt. We've also created a safety zone around the house in rock salt now as well. I can tell you why these things worked, only... I can't tell you why these things worked, only that they do. I would highly recommend the techniques to others trying to protect their livestock. <laughs> the name was withheld by the magazine because the person did not want to be named. Can't say that I blame you. Uh, man, that's something, huh? If you guys have a chupacabra stories, um, I promise I won't make fun of your story on here. None of these stories were sent to me. I'm just reading what I found. So if you have a, a story that you believe actually was a chupacabra running, I would love to hear it because I find all of this to be a little sketchy at best. Here's another one. I live in California now, but I grew up in Texas, and I have many Mexican friends. I heard a lot throughout my life about the fucking chupacabra. Supposedly, it was a vicious killer and would not hesitate to kill a man. For my whole life, I dismissed it as a hell of a good story, but nothing else. All right. In the summer of 99, I was camping out on my friend's property. There were three of us, and we were all there that night. We just graduated from high school, where we uh, unfortunately were all going off to different colleges in the fall, so we spent as much time as we could hanging out before then, fucking off and doing sort of dumb shit that kids our age did. Like, <laughs> you know what dumb kids that age do. We often camped on this guy Ray's property. We'd make a fire, drink beer, smoke cigars, smoke meth, smoke doobies, smoke acid and PCP if you can do that. Which you can't. Not the acid, I don't think. I wouldn't know. Never done it. Never done drugs. That particular night, Ray seemed out of sorts. He wouldn't tell us what the problem was for the longest time, but after a couple of brews, he loosened, <laughs> loosened up and started talking. He was shook. He had said, due to a strange discovery he made on the road a few miles away from his property a few nights before he was driving home, when he noticed a dead deer laying in the brush. So he walked over to it. He was drawn to it. He had no choice. And he was thoroughly creeped out to see that the deer was not roadkill, as he presumed it was. Instead, it had three puncture marks around its head and neck. And there was no blood around, or any sign that the thing had struggled with a predator. It looked like something pounced on it and killed it effortlessly, with no struggle. Ray knew the area like the back of his hand, and he'd never seen anything like it. He couldn't help but think of the story of the chupacabra. Chupacabra. When he saw it, it really messed his head up. Sounds like Ray was an old Ray was soft. All I hear is coward talk right now. He told us how he couldn't rush fast enough to get back to his pickup. Now, Phil and I responded to this heartfelt confession, just like a couple of high school kids would. We laughed, 
mocked him mercilessly for being a pussy, and as we could for the next few hours, mocked him some more before going to bed. Fucking A. I awoke a few hours later to, to Phil shaking me, and Ray was already sitting bolt upright. I heard something, Phil said in a panic, and I giggled again. The story had gotten to him. Shut up and let me sleep, I told him. He swore that he had heard something. And after a couple minutes, we all calmed down enough and laid back down in our sleeping bags. That's when I noticed something really foul that stunk and was blowing at me. Do you smell that? I asked, and both guys told me that they did. There was an intense, bad odor infecting the tent. It was getting stinkier and stinkier. It smelled like rotting flesh. And we were all on the verge of vomiting almost instantly. So it was decided among us that we needed to get out of the tent and clear out whatever the fuck was making that stink. Standing outside, we saw nothing that could have possibly been producing the rancid odor. What we could perceive was that there was something severely off about the area, and there wasn't a single sound. There was no rustling of animals, no birds, just silence. That is a bad sign. That is at least until we heard a screech come from the darkness. Ray shined his flashlight in the direction of the sound, just in time for us to see a small creature that looked kind of like a really muscular light green monkey with no tail rise up from behind a rock. Oh, fuck that shit. The thing had a bristly head of hair and a big set of bug eyes. It was clearly uh, in possession of some very sharp teeth, and it was bearing them at us. It also had claws. It took off out of the light, and Ray tried to follow it, but he couldn't find it. We were all freaking out. We took off sprinting the considerable distance back to Ray's house, leaving the tent and all of our shit behind. Next morning, we made our way back to the campsite, only to find that the tent had holes torn in it and our belongings were scattered everywhere. We stopped camping out after that, and I still see those guys whenever I visit my parents' house, and we still talk about our run-in with the infamous Chupacabra. That night made, me, made a believer out of me, and that guy, he listed his name, and that is Chris Pico. So... Once again, I would love to hear your chupacabra stories, um, since I don't have any. I mean, I do have a story of a foul stink on the breeze, but that's pretty much all it was. When I felt that, I left, and I never saw anything. Probably because when nature gives you instincts, you would be remiss not to listen to them. When the hair on the back of my neck stands up, I get the fuck out of there. You should too. I'm probably right 25% of the time, but... 25% of the time is all you need when something bad's about to happen. Better safe than sorry is what I'm saying. I also carry a gun, so that helps too. In backcountry. Not necessarily. I don't carry a gun in my day-to-day. -day. It's California, I understand. No open carry law. And actually, little known fact in California, I believe they've also done away with the open carry law that was in effect in national parks. So if in the event that you were planning on doing camping in national parks this summer... Read up on the fucking gun laws, because I'm pretty sure they flim-flam people with that this year. I am certain it changed. Ask me how I know, and I won't tell you. How about the Riverside Bridge monster? I have no idea if he's related to the pretzel genius, but Charles Wetzel was trying to get home, and he never bargained for what happened to him on the night of November 8th, 1958, as he neared the point of North Main Street, and where it crosses the Santa Ana in Riverside, he found that the river was overflowing the road and uh, he slowed down a lot. Suddenly he noticed that his radio signal was being drowned out by static. Almost simultaneously, something leapt out of the underbrush and landed right in front of his car. It had a round, scarecrow-looking head, he said. Like something out of Halloween. It wasn't human. It had longer arms than anything I'd ever seen. 
when it saw me in the car, it reached all the way back to the windshield and began clawing me. What? It didn't have any ears and the face was all round. The eyes were shining like something fluorescent and it had a protuberant mouth? He later recalled, and uh, he said that the thing's legs stuck out sideways from its body and its skin looked scaly like leaves. Sounded like someone was drunk. As the lanky hoobajoop clawed at his windshield, Wetzel reached for a 22 caliber pistol he kept under his seat. What is with people in 22 pistols? Quickly changing his mind about opening the window or shooting through the window that separated him from the monster, he just decided to stuff it and he floored it. Creature tumbled off the hood to the ground. Uh, Wetzel ran it over. He felt the scraping underneath and heard screaming and gurgling. And he stomped on it till he was at the nearest police station. Officers noted scratches on the hood and windshield of his car and smears along the oil-covered underside. However, when they returned to the scene with bloodhounds, they found nothing. The next night, another spooked driver reported a similar experience. So if anybody else saw the pumpkin-headed ghoul, they kept it to themselves, and the Santa Ana River Basin has been quiet since then, except in the 70s when Bigfoot tracks were discovered not far away. Uh, in the book Mysterious America, researcher Lauren Coleman has pointed out the preponderance of weird things associated with places and personal names. Wetzel was high on the list, along with Fayette, Hobbs, and of course anything associated with the devil. Coleman also discovered that the other Charles Wetzel, th this one was in Nebraska, had seen something that resembled a kangaroo hopping on his farm in July of the same year. That's kind of weird. I noticed that with dates, like you notice November 6th, 7th, 6th through 10th come up a lot, August 6th through 14th. Um, odd. So that was my, uh, my little cryptid section. And... <laughs> so, if you are familiar with what a stigmatized property is, fuck. This is a good one that's for sale. It's not a good one. This is an interesting property that's for sale at rock bottom prices. Like you can only find in California, near the beach. Close enough to the beach that uh, you can probably smell the ocean. Maybe. Maybe even see it. Uh, it's a huge fucking house. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. But, for those of you that don't, these people were UFO fanboys. And uh, for what it's worth, UFO fanboys are definitely not known for killing themselves in bulk numbers, but there are exceptions to every rule. The Flying Saucer religion that was founded by Bonnie Lou Nettles and Marshall Applewhite survived for 20 years in various guises until the fateful night when 39 stragglers went out with a very loud uh, whimper in northern San Diego County on March 26, 1997. For those of you that remember the footage of this, it was fucking harrowing. Uh, it remains the biggest mass suicide in the United States history. Applewhite was the overachieving son of a Presbyterian minister. He had a magnetic personality and could make almost anybody accept his bullshit. In his late 30s, he was dismissed from his teaching post in an Alabama university for having an affair with a male student. So his marriage broke up soon after that, and in 1972, he admitted himself to a psych facility in Houston, convinced that he was a sex addict and losing his mind. He believed that he, the hospital stay would cure him. While in the hospital, he met Bonnie Lou Trousdale Nettles, whose marriage was also on the rocks. The two discovered a mutual interest in theosophy and soon left the institution to start their own study group and bookstore. 
which they dubbed the Christian Arts Center. Misleading ass name. Their philosophy borrowed heavily from the writings of Theosoph Theosophy founder Oh, Bavatsky. Okay, this is Hitler's Hitler's fam favorite um, parapsychologist? I don't know what to call her, but Theosophy founder Helen Blavatsky. Madame Blavatsky wrote a lot of stuff that Hitler drew from when he was inventing his Third Reich Aryan propaganda. I don't know what to call it. I'm not a scholar. Give me a break. So, they also decided to throw UFOs, astrology, and elements of science fiction into their concoction of bullshit. And this is where the troublesome book of Revelation enters the mix. Nettles and Applewhite believed that they were incarnations of alien beings who were millions of years old and embodied of the two from chapter 11 of Revelation. And uh, they were made manifest on Earth to harvest souls. I am going to read you what chapter 11 about the two has to say. Anything out of the book of Revelations is fucking horseshit. I'm sorry to my religious listeners. But Revelation was written by the Apostle John while he was dying in prison, going insane. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, Revelation chapter 11. And there was given to me reed like unto a rod, and the angels stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without temple leaveth out, and measureth not, for it is given unto thy Gentiles, and the holy city they shall tread under forty forty foot and two months. And I will give it power unto two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. There are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God on the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth thine enemies. And if any man hurt them, he must in this manner be killed promptly. These have powers to shut the heaven, that if rain not in the days of this prophecy, and have power over waters, to turneth them to blood, and smiteth the earth with thine plague, as often as they deem will. And when they shall have finished their testimonieth, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and they shall overcome and kill him. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. And they of all people, all kindreds of tongue and nation, shall see the dead bodies three and a half days, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice in them, and make merry, and send gifts to one another, because the two prophets that tormented them dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit's life from God entereth into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them that saw them. And they heard a great voice from the heaven saying, Come up hither. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. <sighs> that means uh, something to them. Does it mean anything to you? Nope, me either. Okay, so... They believed they were the two. 
to manifest on Earth to harvest souls, which I didn't get from any of that. But in 1973, Old Nettles abandoned her husband and four children, and she and Old Apple White hit the road to start harvesting souls. They told prospective followers that they would be persecuted for their beliefs and murdered, but they'd rise up after three days to be taken up on a UFO. And the only way for people to guarantee salvation was to follow the two and leave behind their bullshit lives uh, of work, family, and sex. This sort of appealing... It, it appealed to a lot of people, except, you know, for the fucking part. Eventually, the group was rechristened Human Individual Metamorphosis. Him, like the band. Except way less good. And recruiting stepped up to a fevered pitch. The two gained a national stage for their horseshit. During one news broadcast, Apple White summed up the ideas of him. When a human has overcome his human-level activities, a chemical change takes place and he goes through metamorphosis, just like a caterpillar does when he quits being a caterpillar and goes off and becomes a butterfly. I see why he lost his teaching job. In 75, Applewhite Nettles announced that a spaceship full of peaceful and beautiful aliens would be arriving soon to pick them up. Him members waited all night with their leaders and not surprisingly, nothing happened. While partly blaming the failure on the members for their lack of attention to the personal growth, they invited anyone who wanted to leave to fuck off. Many chose to stay, in the comforting and increasingly insular womb of him. After the UFO failure, the group wandered the southwest United States, staying for months at a time in tents and campsites until they were thrown out for not paying, or in hotels or apartments when wealthy new recruits gave all their earthly possessions to the collective. Adherents came and went, but caravanning bands managed to hold on to an average of about 40 souls. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Nettles and Applewhite changed their earthbound space alien names whenever inspiration struck. The two first became Guinea and Pig, and then Bo and Peep, finally Doe T. Uh, re referring to the music notes on the scale. In 85, Doe, who was the chick, lost a bout with liver cancer, and Applewhite had to explain to the flock that Doe had gone on to the next level to prepare the way. Over the years, the group placed ads in newspapers, magazines, announcing that time was running out for those who wished to take the magic saucer ride to immortality. Oh my god. <laughs> it befuddles me that people fall for this shit. It's very sad, and I, I'm sympathetic, but... How do you drink the Kool-Aid or the Flavor-Aid on this one? Take the magic saucer ride to immortality. Most observers uh, interpreted the warning as a simple end of the world uh, and that type of drivel from another bunch of lunatics. This would turn out to be a tragic mistake if only had someone had taken him seriously, like the FBI. Almost got him. Through the contributions of its members, as well as lucrative web design businesses, the Foundation, which was then referring to itself as Heaven's Gate, rented a mansion in the secluded and exclusive Rancho Santa Fe area of San Diego County, and they fucked off and waited. In late 96, the world was poised to witness one of the most spectacular celestial events of the late 20th century, a comet. Named after the discoverer, uh, Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp, would become clearly visible in the Northern Hemisphere in the summer of the following year. So, uh, enter the maverick, and some would say wacko, amateur astronomer Chuck Schrameck 
who appeared on the Art Bell radio program to announce that he had detected a companion object of massive size pacing the Haley Bop as it made its approach to Earth. Maverick, uh, remote viewer, county, another lunatic, Courtney Brown, and his assistant, Prudence Calabrese, confirmed that an alien ship was following the comet. Comet. Bell denied any complicity complicity in the subsequent events, saying that he was not responsible for any people chose to do with his information. Uh, Ty and his brood took notice of the news and posted a quotation mark littered announcement on their fucking website. And whether the Haley Bop had a companion or not is irrelevant from our perspective. However, its arrival is joyously very, uh, very significant. This is, I'm sorry, this is what it said online. Whether Hale Bop has a companion or not is irrelevant from our perspective. However, its arrival is joyously significant to us at Heaven's Gate. The joy is that our older member and the evolutionary level above human, the kingdom of heaven, has made it clear to us that Hale Bop's approach is the marker we've been waiting for and the time for us to take the arrival onto the spacecraft from the level above human to take us home to their world in the literal heavens. Our 22 years of classroom here on this planet Earth is finally coming to a conclusion. Our graduation from human evolutionary level will be commenced shortly. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with Ty's crew. I forgot about the part with these these fucking guys where they, cert, they, uh, they some of them castrated themselves too. Uh, Applewhite did. The group thought that Nettles was either riding the mystery object or at least had sent the comment as a sign to just do it. Oh, I think Nettles rode many a mystery object in her day. Applewhite urged members to videotape a last statement or two, which were played back for weeks after the suicides. They're haunting. In their final moments, the shaved-headed followers smiled and even joked about what they were going to do. Years of mind control actually filled them with joy at the idea of doing away with their earthly containers. Hmm. On March 21st, the residents of 18... 24-1, Colina Norte Drive descended on the local Marie Callender's restaurant for a last supper of iced tea, turkey pot pie, and salad, followed by a blueberry cheesecake. Between March 22nd and 24th, 39 people helped each other step into the identical crisp new black jumpsuits emblazoned with a colorful away team logo patch. Uh, each then ate a bowl of phenobarbital-laced applesauce chased with vodka to control any side effects, and it was the first alcohol to touch their lips in years. The dying was done in shifts of, uh, shifts over two days. Applewhite was the last one to go, making sure that no one backed out at the last minute. How fucking charitable. He had thoughtfully mailed two copies of the last statement videos to former members and Los Angeles resident Richard Ford. They were delivered on March 25th, fearing the worst. Here called or, uh, Ford called his boss, who was a guy named Nick Matzorkis, and the two drove to San Diego together. Ford, who had left the cult only five weeks before, entered the house to find 18 women and 21 men lying on freshly laundered sheets and cheap bunk beds covered with purple shrouds. In a move that took the shoe company months, if not fucking years, to live down, they were all wearing brand new black Nike track shoes. Everyone had a passport in their hand and $5.75 cash in the other. I wonder why. What did the heavens... 
<laughs> what in the heavens did they need with the passports and the money? Uh, one creepy and remarkable clue is found in a 1907 story entitled Extract from Captain Stormfield's Trip to Heaven by none other than Mr. Mark Twain. In this tale, the protagonist leaves for an extended excursion among the heavenly bodies on the tail of a comet. <sighs> Jesus Captain Stormfield takes along his passport in 575 in, in cash for the fare. The Heaven's Gate Mansion was eventually sold for less than half of its original value. The new owner changed the address, and the local authorities renamed the street to throw off um, weirdos like me, necro-tourists. The camouflaged address is... Fuck you, you guys can figure it out. I'm not giving you the camouflaged address. The house is, of course, closed to visitors, and the Marie Callender's last meal at, at the restaurant uh, is still a thing, and you can order it, and it's located at 5980 Avenida Encinas, just off of Highway 5 near the Palomar Airport Road. Oh, God. I remember I remember the news story, man. I remember them just bringing vans, coroner vans, because they didn't have enough room. And I don't think they fully got a count until they'd, uh, they'd gone through the house a couple of times. I think they were flustered, and they called the coroner immediately and started loading it up after they did their documentation, of course. But they just needed to bring coroner vans after coroner van, just fucking loading it up. It was a trip. Not in a good way. It was, it was very sad. And they were terrifying everybody, all these fucking coroner vans driving out of the fucking hills. Ugh, man. Okay. So, we were talking about Death Valley earlier, and there's no Death Valley story that's complete without mention of, well, several places in Death Valley. But, for you to understand why they're so significant, I'm going to do a brief sum up of something that you probably have already heard about at least a little bit. Everyone's least favorite dysfunctional family, and that is the Manson family, because the murders were some of the most horrific and brutal in Los Angeles history, and laid bare the evil side of the love generation, and successfully ended the hippie movement. Charles Manson spent most of his life in prison. Before the killings, his last stint had been at Terminal Island Federal Prison near Los Angeles. During his jail time, he absorbed the teachings of Scientology and often used the terms and practices in later interactions with the family members. He never had a chance at life. This poor, poor guy. Poor guy, take that for what it's worth. He, he got dealt a losing hand, so he didn't really have many moves. Uh, while he was behind bars, Manson learned to play guitar, and it was a talent that he used to bring himself the attention of music producer Phil Kaufman, who was serving time at Terminal Island on a weed charge. Oh shit, I didn't know that. Kaufman was so impressed that he gave Manson the names and numbers of music and film producers, an act that would come back to haunt him. And for what it's worth, now, if, if someone says that in L.A. these days and they give you the phone number and address of a film or movie producer, don't go. You're going to get... Just don't go. Manson walked out of jail a free man in March of 1967, and with his parole officer's permission, he moved to San Francisco, just in time for the Summer of Love of 1969. Thousands of seekers and outcasts were flooding the streets of the, uh, the High District and the Manson... Uh, and the Manson, and Manson fit right in. Across the bay at UC Berkeley, Manson recruited his first acolyte, a uh, librarian with copious amounts of body hair, Mary Bruner 
and before long he was sweeping lost female souls off their feet and into his bed at a furious rate. The deflowering of the flower children <laughs> was surprisingly easy for prison-grown guru. The mystical mumbo-jumbo that he spouted was tailor-made for creating the illusion of breaking down people's hang-ups, leaving Manson as the only answer to the void that was left. With a gaggle of young women and a few men in tow, Manson decided to make the trek south and use the contacts that Kaufman had innocently provided him. Uh, in the late 1960s, it seemed that anyone with a guitar had a good shot at a record deal, and Charlie wanted a piece of the action. And he wasn't bad. He was pretty fucking good. Certainly better than other acts at the time, like Country Joe and the Fish. Um, but... It was not to be. So in the late 1960s, it seemed that anyone with a guitar had a good shot at a record deal, and Charlie wanted some of that action. He got a hold of a broken down school bus, which he painted black, with the words Hollywood Productions painted on the side. The French girl who did the lettering misspelled Hollywood, as was a consistent reoccurring theme with the Manson family. They didn't spell very well. Kielter, skielter. Inside, most of the seats were ripped out, and the bus was transformed into a rolling fuck palace. Once in the sunny south, the family stayed for a while at the house, or at a house at the foot of the Topanga Canyon Boulevard, owned by a middle-aged woman known only as Gina, or Gina, depending on where you're from. That they met her in San Francisco, apparently. It was the house with the staircase, which is rather notorious, and a winding staircase at that. Went up to the second story, as most staircases do. Uh, it led some of the girls to quickly dub this place the Spiral Staircase. Well, while living there, Manson picked up uh, a ton of pointers from all manner of self-styled gurus who seemed to wheedle their way from house to house. In the swirl of activity, Manson met a guy named Robert K. Boussoulet. That's Bobby Boussoulet, who was an aspiring musician and an actor. He was actually ingrained in 60s counterculture. He was friends with a guy named Gary Hinman, who was a music teacher who lived on an isolated back road further up the canyon, and Gary Hinman, I believe, was the nice guy mescaline dealer. Uh, one day, two of Manson's girls thumbed a ride from the Beach Boy drummer, Dennis Wilson, who took the girls home for an afternoon of fun and fucking. Uh, the next dawn, when he got back to his house after a recording session, Wilson found the whole family had moved in with him, and after a while, not initially, Wilson got tired of the mess the group made, and had his managers throw them out. They quickly found another home, and that was at an unused western movie set near Chatsworth, owned by an uh, octogenarian named George Spahn. Manson got his girls uh, to tend to Spahn, while he used the new base of operations to steal by or rehab dune buggies and other equipment for a move to the desert, allegedly. Around this time, mid-1968, Manson began to think in apocalyptic terms, according to Bugliosi, feeding his growing mania with quotes and ideas from the Book of Revelation, uh, and other such end-is-nigh claptrap books. After a botched drug deal, he shot a man named Lots of Papa Crow, who was black, in the stomach. Uh, his fear about repercussions from the incident grew, and he imagined that the Black Panthers had put him on a hit list. In Charlie's mind, the family was chosen to wait out the turbulent end of the world as we know it, hiding in the underground paradise that he was sure was located near Death Valley. That's Bugliosi's theory. Manson's paranoid view was that the world was headed for an Armageddon that would be started by a black revolution. 
When the blacks finally took over the country, they wouldn't know how to handle it, and the family would emerge to take charge and teach them how to run the place. This is not what he said, but it's what Bugliosi said, so that's what everyone believes. In November of 1968, the Beatles released the legendary White Album, and even though Manson had been gleaning secret meanings from pop songs for a while now, his heightened sense of bullshit made him certain that the song Helter Skelter prophesied the revolution that was soon to grip the world. He programmed these messages, allegedly, into the mind of his flock, all of whom were expected to become one with Man's Son. That's his last name, you get it? Man's Son? Clever. I believe his, uh... <laughs> name was actually Baby Boy Maddox or something. No name Maddox. And by the summer of 1969, Manson was tired of waiting for Helter Skelter and decided to give it a jump start. Dennis Wilson had earlier introduced him to a music producer named Terry Melcher, who Manson thought was renting a house in Beverly Hills that, um, I'm not telling you the address, but on CeeLo Drive. Unknown to Manson, Melcher had sublet the place Oh, I didn't know that. To a Polish film director and notorious child fucker named Roland Polanski, who at the time had his new wife, Sharon Tate, living with him, who was pregnant. Manson decided, apparently on a drug-induced whim, that Helter Skelter would begin there. That is debatable. On the night of August 9th, see that? August 9th? Uh, just, okay. The... What happened was... He thought Terry Melcher was living there, and he felt that Terry Melcher fucked him over because he promised him a record deal, essentially. He made him feel that he was more interested in his music than he actually was, so Manson got false hope. And they ran out of money as a group. So Manson said, go rob a fucking house and get some fucking money. And they said, where? And he said, I don't, I don't fucking know. One of the, a nice house, like where Terry used to live, or where Terry lived, something like that. And, uh, so they went to the home of Terry Melcher, quite literally, which perhaps was uh, just, I think it was just bad communication. Uh, let's see. And that was on the night of August 9th. Bear in mind, two weeks earlier, Bobby Boussoulet had tortured and killed uh, his good friend Gary Hinman at his home in a botched robbery on Old Topanga Canyon Road, saying that he owed the man's family money because they had uh, middlemaned a bunch of deal with biker gangs for, for him, and not that he needed the help, he was doing fine. Bobby had unknowingly taken the lead on that thing, on that murder-torture thing. So after receiving directions from Manson, allegedly, Susan Atkins, Krenwinkel, Linda Kasabian, and Charles fuckboy asshole Tex Watson drove up to the gate of CeeLo Drive uh, in that home at about 12.30 a.m., the killing began with Stephen Parent, who was a friend of the property's caretaker who was shot four times by Tex Watson at the security gate, and he was just there to sell a fucking stereo, or to try to sell a stereo. Then Watson, Atkins, and Krenwinkel ran up the hill, broke into the house, only after Tex Watson cut the phone lines. Kasabian decided to wait outside, but was a witness to the bloody rampage that followed. Sharon Tate was in a bedroom talking to her friend, Jay Sebring, uh, the hairdresser to the stars, uh, Wojtek Frykowski, who was one of Polanski's friends from Poland, was asleep on the couch in the living room, and Abigail Folger, the heiress to the coffee fortune and Frykowski's current love interest, was reading in another bedroom in a white dress. 
All four people staying in the house were killed by the Manson family members, either stabbed or shot to death. Or both. Manson had told his followers to leave a sign to give a full scare and make sure that their deed was valued in fear. Allegedly. Before they left, Atkins took a towel, dipped it in Sharon Tate's blood, and wrote pig on the front door. And it was there for a surprisingly long time. For fucking, I think until Trent Reznor bought the place. The next night... Manson piled the same group into a car with him and also asked Clem Grogan and Leslie Van Houten to come along. They drove aimlessly through Pasadena. No shit. Then Charlie told Kasabian to point the car in a direction and head to Los Feliz. They stopped in front of a home they knew from LSD and peyote parties that the family had attended. You're not going to do that house, are you? No. The one next door, Manson said. The one next door was on Waverly Drive, and I'm not giving you the address either the home of a grocery store chain owner named Lino LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. The couple had just returned from a weekend at disgusting Lake Isabella and were relaxing on a quiet Sunday night. That's fucking sad, man. Manson told the others to wait in the car as he broke into the house. He tied up the couple and told them that they were not going to be harmed. Returning to the car, Manson told Watson, Krenwinkel, and Van Van Houten to go up to the house and kill the couple because he didn't have it in him. Some people can murder, some people can't. Manson didn't have it in him. Obedient followers, they obliged, stabbing Rosemary LaBianca and her husband numerous times before leaving, though they uh, used the blood from the killings to write on the walls, uh, Death to Pigs and Rise, a very poor rendition of the Black Panther Fist, and most significantly, the tragic misspelling Kilter Skelter on the door of the fridge. In the last week of August, Manson, Clem Grogan, and Bruce Davis, along with the rest of the family, tortured and killed Donald J. Shorty Shea, one of the employees at Spawn Ranch, whom they suspected of squealing to the police about their bullshit. And then, in early September, the family moved to Death Valley. One of the girls had told Charlie that her grandmother, Arlene Barker, owned property near Death Valley in Golder Wash. And, uh, that's where they headed. No one knows how they managed to get the old-school bus up the treacherous road to Barker Ranch, but it's still there. Manson and the family occupied both the Barker Ranch and the nearby Myers Ranch, and it was there that they started a program of desert maneuvers with the family and their tricked-out dune buggies, some of which had been fitted with scabbards for shotguns and rifles. And they had huge gas tanks that gave them a thousand-mile range. All of this was in preparation for the coming of Hilter Skelter. When the family would wait around for the revolution to die out, at which point they would reemerge from the ground, now numbering 144,000, as foretold by the Book of Revelation, and they would take over. The grand plan was waylaid by a few stupid fucking mistakes, not the least of which was Manson's decision to burn a National Park Service tractor that was ripping up his desert. This act brought the family to the attention of the Fuzz, who descended on the hippie compound in a series of late-night raids from October 10th to 12th. The Manson family was jailed in the small town of Independence. Oh, God. And the officers that were there were trying to sort out the myriad of petty and not-so-petty charges that were levied against them when word arrived mysteriously from Los Angeles that Susan Atkins, uh, incarcerated for car theft in the Sybil Brand Woman's Prison in L.A., had been bragging to other inmates about the Tate and LaBianca murders. 
The Inyo County authorities were shocked. They had no idea that this disgusting group of hippies could possibly be responsible for the most brutal murders in California history at that time. Uh, Manson and the others directly involved in the Tate and LaBianca slayings were put on trial, and almost all defendants were eventually sentenced to death. They were given a reprieve with, when, when the Supreme Court decided that the death penalty constituted cruel and unusual punishment in certain cases, and in 72, their sentences were commuted to life with possibility of parole. Although it's nearly impossible that any of them will be let out in their lifetimes, uh, Manson recently died in the California Correctional Facility in Corcoran. So, let's talk about Ballarat. Ballarat, it is one of my favorite places in Death Valley, but it's not terribly exciting unless you know the lore. I'm not going to say it's fact, because it's not. Um, I've heard many a theory about the goings-on of Ballarat, but what I know to be true, there is a ghost town near Death Valley, right at the entrance of it. There's some interesting structures. It's uh, slowly disappearing into the local landscape. There's old adobe buildings, a few weathered wooden surfaces, and that's all that remains. And it's at the base of the colorful and spooky Panamint Mountains. There are abandoned trailers and trucks that dot the landscape like rusted ornaments on a disgusting Christmas tree. There's a truck that is a 1942 Dodge Power Wagon that's parked there and it belonged to Charlie Manson, allegedly. Um, the convicted murderer, my mistake, it belonged to the Manson family member and convicted murderer Tex Watson, and he parked it there when they moved. It's, um... It's spooky. It's still there, and nobody fucks with it, because, uh, even if it's not, it's, uh, it's stigmatized, much like property that someone got murdered at. So the tale of Ballarat is that it's a boom-and-bust type of town. It never was much to begin with, and after the death of one or more of its colorful residents, uh, named Seldom Seen Slim, Ballarat continued its decline into what it is today. I believe he was the guy that tunneled into the mountains. It was named after the Australian gold camp by a young Australian immigrant, George Riggins. Ballarat was created in 1897 as a supply post when Ratcliffe Mine opened in Pleasant Canyon. Pleasant Canyon is mysterious. it's a tragically named incorrectly. It's not pleasant. In 99, that's 1899, the town had four or 500 residents, as well as a Wells Fargo station, a post office, a school, a jail, hotels, and several saloons. However, as with most of these towns, after the mine closed in 1905, Ballarat died slowly, and then the post office closed in 1917, and it ceased to formally exist. Located in the Panamint Valley, north of Trona, the shoof, Trona, and just outside Death Valley National Park, Ballarat is visited by the occasional wild burro, which is an ass. Not an ass like me, an ass like a donkey. And people who love exploring the nearby rocky canyons. Spring, winter, and fall are the best times to visit as 120 to 130 degree summer temperatures rival those in Death Valley. Hiking and other outdoor activities are difficult in the heat, if not downright impossible and or dangerous. Trona where people try to fight you in the parking lot of a Dollar General <laughs> over a parking spot and over other shit. The only resident now is a guy named Rocky Novak. His dad, George, lived out there too, and George was a teller of very tall tales with uh, piercing blue eyes and a full head of hair under a black cowboy hat. And Unfortunately, George passed away in his sleep in his home at Ballarat on April 8th, 2011, where he resided with his son, Rocky.
who I know personally. George, when he died, was 90 years old. <laughs> Never seen pictures of the old man. He uh, looks a lot like his kid. <laughs> Rocky Novak, he's a, uh, he's a landmark, man. That guy, they say that he seems lost in thought in the desert all the time. He's desert-worn handsome, according to the people in Trona, and his face mirrors the rough-hewn textures of the ghost town in which he caretakes. Agreed. Rock describes himself as a lonely caretaker, looking for love, always hoping to find someone who will share his life and love of the desert and fondness for local history. I've heard mixed stories about this guy. The man himself, pretty close-lipped about anything in the past, but word around the campfire is that he and old Charlie were acquaintances that were pretty friendly, hence the truck being parked on the land that technically he owns. Novak is a hard rock miner who runs the little store and the museum in this privately owned ghost town. He lovingly looks after the cemetery and entertains visitors with historical stories of Ballarat and the surrounding mountains mining lore. He also throws a wicked desert party for what it's worth. If you're in the area, check it out. It's usually around 4th of July. Sharing a cold soda at sunset with Rock on the store veranda, visitors can perhaps catch an impromptu air show of the fighter planes from nearby China Lake as they buzz the valley. It's not a fucking air show, man. They're running maneuvers. Or they can see the freshly panned gold flakes that Novak will share his knowledge about. He also shares his knowledge of uh, local geology and the gossip about the Rainbow Chasers. And they were the prospectors whose names are legendary in Mojave Desert history. So as I said, the post office shut down in 1917, and a few legendary Death Valley old-timers struck gold and stuck around, like seldom-seen Slim, born Charles Furge, who lived most of his life in Ballarat, scouring the surrounding desert for minerals. There is another one, Fred Gray, 53-year-old resident of Ballarat, who lived on the edge of the dry lake long after the mine closed. Chris Wick kept the saloon open, catering to other desert rats and wanderers. The Assay office is one of the most complete buildings still standing, which is not very. Shorty Harris, who discovered the rich bullfrog strike, called himself a single-blanket jackass prospector. Whatever that means. He lived in the fading town off and on until he died in 34. Seldom seen, who claimed he hadn't taken a bath in 20 years because the water was so hard to come by, lived in Ballarat until he died in 68. The last of the rainbow chasers. He's buried in the cemetery, and it's one of the few graves with a real marker and not just a wooden cross with a name written on it in Sharpie and scoured off by the weather. George once said of Slim that he's got a lot of pictures of himself taken for somebody who was seldom seen. <laughs> Many people visit Ballarat to visit the grave of the old prospector, seldom seen Slim. If you visit Ballarat, visit Ballarat for fucking Novak, because that guy's a trip, man. He's fucking hilarious. Um... <laughs> they don't know the trip of the mines, my friend. They don't know the trip that old Charlie was on, man. They misrepresented him, man. What are you guys doing next summer, man? You come by for my... I, I throw an independence party, man. The trip of the mind. He's a character. Character in the best kind of way. Learn a lot from that guy, and you can take a picture standing near Tex Watson's truck. Who, uh... Fuck Tex Watson. Let's talk about the Death Valley Junction. Uh, it was way ahead of the cultural curve, for what it's worth. <sighs> Today, the population of the town needs about seven more people to reach double digits. But the 82-year-old dancer 
Actress, musician, painter Marta Beckett has conquered the naysayers and brought civilization to this very small desert-dwelling community. As the legend goes, in the spring of 67, Marta was an already seasoned performer who had been dancing since she was three. Tired of the grind of Broadway, Radio City, and the entire New York scene, she and her husband at the time traveled to California for a one-week camping vacation in the anti-Big Apple Death Valley. On the morning their vacation was to come to an end, they awoke to find a flat tire on their rental car and they were directed by the park ranger to the nearest gas station 30 miles away. As the local mechanic took to repairing the problem, Marta used the opportunity to wander about, strolling around the lonely buildings, and she was stunned by the tallest structure on the strip. It was a theater. She pulled out, or she pulled on the front door only to discover that it was locked, so she ran back around the building and was able to peek inside. And it was quite obvious the stage hadn't been used in fucking years. The floorboards were warped, and the once colorful playhouse curtains had faded. And debris spotted the entire room, and it was in that instant that Marta Beckett understood her fate. Peering through that tiny hole, she said later, I had the distinct feeling that I was looking at the other half of myself. The building seemed to be saying, take me, do something with me, I offer you life. Immediately, the city dancer located the town manager and negotiated a $45 a month rental contract with the stipulation that she also assume responsibility for its repairs. Marta not only restored it, she insured or insured a sold out show every night by taking the next six years to completely cover the bare walls and ceilings with the mural of an audience straight out of the 16th century. Upon her fortifications, kings and queens sit pleasantly beside hookers and gypsies uh, and tour readers dance with bulls and decorated mystics from the Orient amuse and delight nearby monks and nuns. The paintings are great. I don't know anything about art. Not even a little bit. But I know that these paintings are great. And they're reason enough to visit the old Amargarosa Opera House. And then, of course, there's Marta, Renaissance woman. And whether the crowd is human or painted... Martha Beckett still feels the magnetic pull of the spotlight and has kept to her twice a week performance uh, and she schedules a that she schedules religiously since the curtain first came up almost 40 years ago. She creates her own costumes, choreographs her own dance moves and has designed all of her own stage props and wrote a lot of her own plays. Now in the twilight of her years, unfortunately, Martha still moves with the grace of a woman who was born to walk on the boards of the stage. At a recent function in her honor, the ever spry performer mused, I'm so grateful that after 35 years, I don't have to worry about a full house. It's always there. I only wish I was 20 years old again. The upper house is located somewhere in Death Valley Junction. You can't miss it. It's the tallest structure on the strip. You gotta check this place out. Fucking great. On the subject of playing roles, Lee Majors played the role of astronaut Steve Austin, not Stone Cold, but the one from the television show uh, Six Million Dollar Man from the years 1973 to 78. But it was in the year 76 that the mummified body of outlaw, outlaw Elmer McCurdy was discovered hanging around with the film crew of Six Million Dollar Man. And it was as they began setting up for the day's shoot. They were filming in Long Beach at a funhouse called Laugh in the Dark. Why is it funhouses are never fucking fun, man? The place contained the regular spook show shit, including wax figures, ghosts, and fake skeletons. And while setting up at the location, the producer noticed a day-glow orange wax figure hanging from makeshift gallows, and he asked one of the crew to take it down. He didn't like the way it looked. The stagehand grabbed at the wax dummy's left arm, only to have it come off in his hand, revealing a human bone sticking out of the shoulder. 
They immediately called for medical examiners and forensic investigators. They took the wax figure and determined that it was not a wax figure and it was in fact a mummified human body. It had been shot by a 32 caliber bullet, determined to have been manufactured between 1830 and 1920. Upon further examination, the mouth of the mummy was found to hold a 1924 penny and ticket from the Museum of Crime in Los Angeles. The discovery of that ticket led police, police to help identify the body of notorious outlaw. Yeah, fuck you, Siri, fucking whore. McCurdy decided on a life of crime after being told that the woman he thought was his aunt was really his mom. It's a weak reason, man. This apparently annoyed him to no end, so he joined up with a few outlaw gangs, killed a few people, and then planned on robbing the Missouri Pacific train that supposedly was transporting $1,000. On October 6th, note the date, 1911, McCurdy pulled off the robbery of the train in Oklahoma, but when he opened the safe, he discovered that he robbed the wrong train and only $46 was inside. No one ever accused him of being a smart man. However, he did manage to find a sizable shipment of whiskey. Heading into Oklahoma farmlands a few days later, drunk and tired, McCurdy stopped at a farmhouse and passed out in the hayloft. A three-man posse that was tracking the outlaw trapped him in the barn and began shooting. After an hour, a farmhand was asked to go into the barn and tell McCurdy to surrender. He refused, saying, they can go to the devil. The barn was shot up, and McCurdy was discovered dead not long afterwards. The body was brought to a funeral home in Powhuska, Oklahoma, but McCurdy was never identified and nobody came to claim his corpse. The undertaker embalmed him with arsenic. Why? With 700 times the dose used in Egyptian mummies, and came up with a very entrepreneurial idea. Since the body looked very well preserved and was dressed up in, in his last gunfighting suit, he named the corpse the bandit that wouldn't give up, and for a nickel, he let the citizens of Pahuska view it. The nickels were dropped in the mummy's mouth, later to be retrieved by the ever-comical Undertaker. Ew. The mummy was on view for five years, and the Undertaker refused many offers from carnivals and sideshows for his bandit's corpse. The nickel-swallowing mummy became, oh God, became a regular attraction for the funeral home in Pahuska, and so why give up a good thing? Fucking don't, man. You're right. One day, two men showed up at the funeral home claiming to be cousins of the mummy, and the undertaker had no choice but to give up the stiff to its next of kin. Ouch. They turned out to be sideshow promoters, and they had bamboozled the undertaker into handing over the corpse. Supposedly, for a proper failure. Burial. Instead, they took old Elmer along with them throughout Texas with the same billing, the bandit that wouldn't give up. After Texas, McCurdy traveled around the country showing up at amusement parks, lying around in an open coffin in the L.A. Wax Museum. Ew. And believe it or not, he was used as a prop in a few low-budget films. Wow. After a while, his body was coated with wax to help preserve it during his many road trips, and his greatest tour was in the 1930s with Lois Sonny, a sheriff who acquired McCurdy for his traveling West western-themed show. Eventually, Elmer faded into obscurity, and nobody knows exactly how he ended up at the defunct Laugh-in-the-Dark Funhouse in Long Beach, but when the $6 million man crew found him, his final journey to the grave was almost over. Medical examiners identified him with a little-known method called medical superimposition. <laughs> God. Known photos of McCurdy were overlaid with x-rays of the mummy's face, and positive IDs were made. McCurdy was given a proper funeral in Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. 
Town residents gave Old Elmer the full treatment, a parade ride to the cemetery and all his Wild West finery. And to be certain, that showbiz days were behind him. Uh, the Oklahoma State coroner ordered that two cubic yards of cement be poured into McCurdy's grave so he wouldn't be stolen, or kidnapped I suppose, and put back to work. He would never again be thrust into the limelight against his will. Alright. Holy fucking shit. <laughs> I love this story. Speaking of robberies, newspaper heiress Patricia Hurst had been missing for two months when the police noticed something strange in a surveillance picture of recent holdup at the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco. The victim of their number one kidnapping case was standing near a wall brandishing a military-issued rifle at three other women and a man, and they cleaned out the bank for $10,000. When the fucking picture hit the papers, the whole nation was shitting themselves. How did the child of, a, of privilege suddenly take up with a gang of anarchist hood rats? Some may say that the kidnapping of Hearst from her expensive-ass apartment on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1974, was a kind of karmic retribution for the yellow journalism churned out by her grandfather, William Hearst. Uh, that fucker. Uh, the self-styled SLA, which was the uh, Symbionese Liberation Army, certainly saw it that way. To them, Patricia Hearst was the perfect target, and their plan succeeded beyond their wildest dreams when she apparently became a willing participant in their revolution at 19 years old. The SLA which most people don't know about, was founded by mostly middle-class whites in the Berkeley area in 1971. The then Donald DeFries escaped from Vacaville State Prison in 1973 and forcibly took over the organization. DeFries pushed the SLA into a violent phase. The Hearst kidnapping was one step in a string of destabilizing acts that he planned to carry out. DeFries, who had taken the revolutionary name of Cinque Matumi, that's funny, because I always thought these guys were foreign. Probably because of that stupid, unpronounceable name. Made a decision to bring down Patty's father, whom he regarded as the man-man. Using one of his own innocent daughters, uh, they decided they hustled Patty into a nondescript apartment in San Francisco and locked her in a tiny closet for two months. While in captivity, she was subjugated to continual abuse, attacks, and lack of privacy, even while taking a dump. All the while, DeFries and others reprogrammed her with the philosophy of the SLA. When she had been sufficiently trained, her captors decided to test her loyalty with the bank job, and she not only cooperated, but she was even observed to smile at DeFries as they left the scene. And, oh man, in this picture she looks concerningly like my ex-girlfriend. Hearst later claimed that the others were pointing their guns at her during the job, and while on the lamb, Hearst made periodic statements denouncing the establishment and her parents and declaring herself a soldier of the People's Army. And she now called herself Tania, after Che Guevara's bitch. Tanya? Tania? I don't fucking know. Only a month after the robbery on May 16th, on May 16th, Hearst was in the Los Angeles sitting. She was in Los Angeles sitting in a gateway van while two other SLA members <laughs> shoplifted items from Mel's sporting goods store in Inglewood. When they observed, and they were, or when they were observed, and ran out of the building. Hearst fired several warning shots that barely missed the store owner and several bystanders. Ditching the van and stealing several cars, the three fugitives hightailed it to a hotel near Disneyland in Anaheim. 
Meanwhile, back at the safe house, the other SLA members heard about the botched shoplifting and hastily moved the fuck out. They drove around for a while and finally took over another house simply because it was the only one with lights on at 4 a.m. On an anonymous tip, 400 police officers and SWAT team members converged on the residence the next afternoon. Wow. Occupants of this street? This is the Los Angeles... I'm not telling you the address of this fucking place either. This is the Los Angeles Police Department speaking. Come out with your hands up. They screamed it at him through a bullhorn. A child and an old man walked out. And after more attempts to get the occupants to leave, uh, they failed. So they shot tear gas canisters. Gunshots erupted from within and the cops returned fire. And a four-hour siege ensued, during which several other non-SLA members emerged from the house safe, but barely. When it was over, the residence was burning, burning in a fire started by the tear gas, which is highly combustible, as seen in Waco at the Branch Davidian compound. And six SLA members were dead. The Freeze was later found to have shot himself. Amazingly, no spectators or neighborhood residents were killed or hurt. Millions watched the drama on live television, including the last three SLA soldiers in Los Angeles, which were Hearst, her husband, or Hearst and husband and wife, Bill Harris. I'm sorry. Hearst and husband and wife duo, Emily and Bill Harris. Hearst and the Harrises released a recorded statement condemning the police and went back to San Francisco where they robbed another bank in April. An elderly woman de depositing church funds, oh man, was killed in the holdup. That's fucked up. Emily Harris later said it doesn't really matter. She was a bourgeois pig anyway. Wow. All the gang, including Hearst, were caught and arrested the next month. At booking, when asked her occupation, she said, Urban Gorilla. Holy fuck. Uh, the Hearst family hired flamboyant attorney. Oh man, I love this guy. Effley Bailey to defend their daughter. But Bailey submitted a weak defense, which the jury didn't buy. And despite expert witnesses who testified that Patricia Hurt was the victim of a skillful brainwashing technique, uh, in March 76, she was sentenced to seven years in jail. But Jimmy Carter commuted the term two years later. Under further pressure from Carter, Hearst was issued a full presidential pardon by Bill Clinton in 2001. For fuck's sake. After marrying her bodyguard and settling down to raise a family in Connecticut, she appeared in five of John Waters' films and used the publicity and experience to begin a new life as an actress. God bless America. And on that uplifting note, I want to thank you all for tuning back in. This has been another... Oh, very exciting and not at all disturbing episode of Anthology of Horror. Thank you very much for tuning back in. I know the last few episodes have been uh, not, not easy to listen to at all. Pretty fucking hard to listen to, in fact. So thank you for tuning back in. I know it's been kind of a little bit, a little bit rough for some of you. I've gotten some, uh, some what-the-fuck emails, and I didn't mean to just play a game of fucking how disturbing can I get with... Uh, true crime cases I feel like that story needs to be told I'm gonna keep saying it that poor girl in order to honor her memory you need to pass the story along so that it doesn't happen again that's why I did it because she deserves that um I've noticed an overwhelming amount of support recently from uh people that I imagine are sharing the podcast with their family and friends or people they don't like and think it would be funny to punish with me but as is our custom I want to thank the most influential, or I'm going to give an anonymous shout out to the town in which the most influential people live because on my 
like interface, I guess, for the podcast, I can see the town in which it originated. Like, so if there's one listener in uh, Jerkwater, there'll be a single dot. However, if there's another one, it'll be, uh, you know, there's going to be like a bit of a glow to that dot, and you can see that the person that you saw initially is the one that spread it. It's uh, it's a little difficult to explain when I say it like that, but you can see outward expansion. Uh, saw it in Texas first when that was very impressive. Wherever you were in, in Galveston, Texas, you were very influential. So, let's see, on this last episode... Let's see, let me get to it. Sorry for the wait. And the winner is... London. No fucking shit. Thank you. Thank you very much. Followed by Freehold, New Jersey. Followed by, wow, Glasgow, Scotland. And Rome, Georgia, tied with Glasgow, Scotland. Seattle, Washington. Prescott, Arizona. Erie, Pennsylvania. Liverpool. Liverpool. Fucking A. Kingston. Plano, Texas. I see that just Texas again. And... Tamworth, England, Salt Lake City, Utah, Elnora, Indiana, Van Nuys, California, Bradford, England, and Austin, Texas. Thank you all very much, you guys, purely because I value your time and I have a massive ego ego that's not going to stroke itself, and you guys uh, certainly help with that, so thank you very much. Uh, If there's anything that I could do better or differently, please do not hesitate to get in touch with me, and you can do so at my personal Instagram, I have fired my page managers, so uh, uh, there's going to be a bit of a lull in response time, granted now, but you can rest assured I will see your message eventually, and that is dukelandis17 on Instagram.com. That's Instagram.com slash Duke, D-U-K-E, Landis, L-A-N-D-I-S-1-7 on Instagram, and please... Do not hesitate to rate me on the iTunes store if you feel that I deserve it. I've noticed that uh, quite a few of you have, and I'm very grateful because it means a lot to me that you guys actually take the time to share it and rate it and continue to listen. Like I said, you guys are the reason I do this. And if there's anything I could do better or anything that you like and you want me to keep doing, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I'd also love to hear stories from your town, legends from your town, and I'd love to cover it. I'm here for you guys, so please just speak up. So I will see you next time for another exciting episode of Anthology 4. And thank you all very much for tuning back in, but until next time, stay spooky.